It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, I'm Matthew Wolf, and you're listening to my podcast. This podcast is the best bit from my weekly radio show on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from 3 till 4. What you're listening to is taken from live radio, but this is a podcast, which means it is obviously not live. So please do not try and get in contact with any of the live details you may hear me mention throughout the show, as your messages will not be received, but you may still be charged. All of our terms and conditions for getting involved can be found on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. Also, As this is a podcast, some of the information we give about news stories may have been updated or changed since our broadcast went live. The information in this podcast is accurate and correct as of the time the radio show was originally broadcast, but might not now be accurate. Anyway, enjoy the podcast and don't miss the live radio show every Sunday from three till four, where you can get in touch live. Hello and welcome to the podcast. As always, we've got two topics coming up on the hour. The first question we asked the listeners was what they thought the European Super League showed about culture in the UK. Does culture need to be protected better from fans and supporters being exploited? Later in the show, we spoke about environmental regulation. This after Brazil promised at a US-led climate summit to lower emissions, but then cut their environment budget. I hope you enjoy the two topics coming up. Good afternoon and welcome to Wizard Radio. For the next hour and at this time every single Sunday, I'll be discussing your thoughts on the biggest current affairs and political stories of the week gone by. As always, we've got two topics coming up on the show. First off, I want to hear your thoughts on what the short-lived European Super League shows about the role of big business in culture. How can fans be protected in the future? I also want to know your thoughts on what happened with the European Super League being repeated in different forms in other industries and how the consumer can be protected. And we'll finish the show with a discussion on how climate change legislation can change to be more effective and binding. This comes as Brazil has as the Brazilian government have announced a cut in spending on the environment despite pledging to end all illegal deforestation by 2030. As always, please get in touch. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at WizRadio. Text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply. It's 07807183538 for that. Email our station at wizardradio.co.uk and all of our contact details are on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. Good afternoon. The sports world was shaken to its core at the beginning of this week as 12 of the biggest European football teams, including six from England, 
announced that they were set to break away to form a separate, exclusive league with no promotion or relegation. To say this was met with fury would be an understatement. Current and former players alike slammed the proposals as an unashamed money grab on behalf of the continent's richest teams, with many dismaying that this sh- that should this have gone ahead, it would have been the end of football as we know it. Here is former Manchester United defender and current Sky Sports pundit Gary Neville articulating his fury at the proposals. Manchester United, 100 years, born out of workers around here and they're breaking away into a league without competition that they can't be relegated from. It's an absolute disgrace and honestly we have to wrestle back the power in this country from the clubs at the top of this league, and that includes my club. And I've been calling for 12 months as part of another group for an independent regulator to bring checks and balances in place to stop this happening. It's pure greed. They're imposters. They're imposters. They're nothing to do. The owners of this club, the owners of Liverpool, the owners of Chelsea, the owners of Manchester City, they're nothing to do with football in this country. There are 100 and odd years of history in this country from fans that have lived and loved these clubs. And they need protecting. The fans need protecting. I benefited from football hugely. I've made money out of football. I invest money into a football club. Now, I'm not against money in football, but the principles and ethos of fair competition and the rights to play the game so that Leicester win the league, they go into the Champions League. Manchester United aren't even in the Champions League. Arsenal aren't even in the Champions League. You watched them earlier on today. They're absolute shambles of a football club at the moment. Tottenham aren't in the Champions League. And they want a God-given right to be in there. They're an absolute joke. And honestly, the time has come now. Independent regulators, stop these clubs having the power base. Enough is enough. This fury was echoed throughout the football world. Fans held large-scale protests outside stadiums and social media was on fire with football fans dismayed at plans which would disregard so much tradition and history. These protests were ultimately successful as all six of the English teams involved withdrew within a couple of days. Some of you listening may not take a large interest in football, or even sport as a whole. However, I believe this story extends beyond sport to politics and national culture, something that was not lost on the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He took swift involvement... Sorry. Uh, Boris Johnson, who took swift involvement, criticising the plans. Football is deeply rooted in community. This is something that is shared by both smaller teams that have become and the teams that have become international brands. Many run foundation for local charities, they run academies for children, and most importantly, they've been a source of entertainment for many, week in, week out, for generations. The popularity of football has always been potentially lucrative, and the game has become monetised more and more over the years, to the point where it is now a multi-billion pound industry, owned at the top by billionaires. These billionaires are pursuing growth, And this has led many fans to feel neglected by their clubs as they're priced out as new markets are explored. I believe that the story of football, I believe the story of football can be expanded to other areas of culture, such as new areas of music, films and even comedy. When an industry becomes lucrative, how does it stay? How does it stay true to its roots and not begin to exploit the people that made it so lucrative in the first place through their interest? Is it the job of governments to get involved and look after the consumer and the people that made these industries so big? Or should the free market be allowed to go unregulated as growth and new markets are pursued? 
As always, I want to hear your thoughts on this topic. So just a reminder of the ways in which you can get in touch. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at WizRadio. Text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply on 07807183538. Email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all of our contact details are on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. And for our second topic today, I want to talk about the law surrounding climate change. This comes as Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, has approved a cut to the environment ministry budget just a day after he vowed boost spending to tackle deforestation. At a US-led climate summit, he promised to double the money reserved for environmental enforcement and to end illegal deforestation by 2030. But the budget signed off on Friday did not include his spending pledge or additional proposals made by Congress. In the wake of this, I want to know if you think environmental laws need to be more restrictive. If so, what are your ideas for how the international community can, can become more effective at making nation states follow their word. Just a reminder of the number you need to get in touch with the show. It's 07807183538. So I want to hear from as many of you as possible um, on that first topic, um, the question of if the events surrounding the European Super League show uh, that business uh, really doesn't have a place in culture. Do you think that, or uh, is there a place? Uh, does it need to be regulated? I want to know what you think this event really shows. Um, so, yeah, that's a reminder of the question. Um, I want as many of you to get in touch as possible, but right now we're getting our first break of the show. Uh, the song on now um, is... is uh, the song on now is by Regard, Troy Savant and Tate McRae, you. Welcome back to Wizard Radio. I'm Matthew Wolf. Uh, without wasting any more time, we're going to get straight into the first topic of today's show, the question of what did the events surrounding the European Super League show about the role of business in culture? And i um, got a text here from Benny who says, the European Super League plans show that people who own football clubs are just completely out of touch with what the fans want. You could see this coming, though, because there is too much money in football now. The whole game has become about money. Players get transferred for millions of pounds. The right to games get bought for millions. Naturally, that attracts owners who see football clubs as a pot of money, not actually something that impacts the communities that clubs are playing on behalf of. I don't know how to solve the problem because you can't just take the money out of football overnight, but it's a shocking state of affairs. Well, Benny, thanks for the text. And um, I agree with um, pretty much everything you're saying there. I do think that... um, to pretend football is is not a business is just delusional right now. Um, it's a, in, one of the most lucrative things in, in the whole of the UK economy. Some would say that's why Boris Johnson uh, wants to protect it um, above uh, above protecting the fans because it's worth so much money to the UK economy and to um, other economies around the entire world. Uh, football, football clubs, and especially the top ones, are billion-pound businesses. And... Um, Billionaires obviously have seen that, like you said, and say it's a good opportunity to make money. But one important thing to remember is the reason these clubs are worth so much isn't for any other reason other than the fact that the fans have made it so. The fans have created the culture that um, is sold overseas. When um, a, when Liverpool play Man United, the game's sold overseas, not just as a game between two really good football teams. 
but as the biggest rivalry that dates back 100 years and people who've never been to Liverpool, who've never been to Manchester, uh, spend lots of money on the TV subscriptions for the games because of that history and the culture. History and culture that was created by the fans, but those same fans are now being disregarded in the pursuit for more money in other countries and other markets. So, um, yeah, you made a host of good points there, Benny, and I feel like I've maybe... um, just raise another issue there. Um, the, what I think is is the reason behind all of this, uh, something worth bearing in mind. So yeah, uh, thanks for your text there. I'm going to move on to another one here from Mo, who says, I think an issue like the European Super League only happens when the game gets so controlled by organisations that are just that are just out of touch. And I'm not talking about the clubs here. I'm talking about UEFA. Us fans might be united against the Super League, but don't for a minute think that fans are on board with the greedy way that UEFA works. The Champions League format is built around money, making sure the big clubs are treated differently. UEFA are the original culprits who destroyed the sport. Everyone else, including the European Super League, is just building on top of the work UEFA started. Well, Mo, it's a great point. And um, one of the things that actually made my skin crawl um, with the huge irony of what was taking place was when the UEFA president was talking about these plans, saying... Um, it disregarded the fans. It's a money grab that um, disregards true fans, true supporters and the tradition and culture of the game. And that's from the same people who, for the Champions League final um, between Liverpool and Tottenham a few years ago, in a, in a stadium of um, in a stadium of 80,000 seats, um, only 20,000 were given to Spurs fans and 20,000 given to Liverpool fans. The rest given to neutral fans at um, way, way higher prices. And you can be absolutely certain that both Spurs and Liverpool would have sold out that stadium on their own three, four times earlier. So it was the real fans that were being um, jeopardised in pursuit of the the expensive corporate seats. And that's just one example. UEFA, like you said, the way the champions... This is quite... um, I'm aware that this is quite um, in-depth with the way the football's run, but... um, yeah, the way that you, the Champions League works with the group stage and many games that are pretty much pointless but are played because it garners more money for the um, for the for the TV com- for the TV companies and for um, for UEFA who take a commission from that. So um, it's all a cycle to for, for UEFA and the people that run football to try and make more money out of the game. And it, it's ironic that UEFA got on their high horse now and said that this is impacting fans. And uh, many people, rightly so, were saying well, hang on a minute, do you really care about the fans or are you scared that this new competition will take money away from you? So, uh, yeah, it really put into um, put into question whether um, there needs to be some kind of external body not connected to UEFA, not connected to FIFA, um, that regulates the way um, football teams and uh, football businesses run um, in a way that protects the fans. Uh, that, that was an idea proposed by Gary Neville, some kind of external regulator. And... Um, I wouldn't be opposed to that. Something to um, r- really, um, really like putting stricter rules that protect fans from exploitation from greedy owners and greedy TV companies. So yeah, um, thanks for that text there, uh, Mo. I'm going to move on to another one here from Noah, who's kind of broadened the question with his answer, who says, to your point about the other areas of culture, like music and film, I don't think fans ever truly get a say in how those industries work. With the music industry, for example, did fans ever say, ever have a say in music streaming services? Or do we get a say with where concert venues are? No, it's the same with the film industry. 
I never wanted to have to pay £10 a month for Netflix, but that's the direction that things went in. All of these businesses are built on lots and lots of money, and the people with the money get to decide how all, the fa- all of the fans have to act, just like there are organisations that try to regulate all of these industries. I think the fans need a body now to make sure our opinion is considered, because we're the ones paying the money. Well, Noah, thanks for your text, and... Um, but yeah, thanks for broadening the, the question out to other areas of culture. I think it's a really interesting point to, to dive into. The idea that um, in our, in music and film, the fans get, fans, the, the people that, the consumers of the product, if you will, get, get no say, even less than in football. And that does lead to some fans being, or feeling ripped off um, with concerts being all around the world, but not in local venues. But I do think that... Um, with some of the music industry, at least they try and um, have local venues or because often artists, if they're a solo artist or a band, they've got, um, because they started, um, because they started uh, in like local pubs and stuff, quite a lot of them have done, um, have tried to try and give back to these communities in um, and and these local music venues during the hard times that COVID has provided. So I do think that, um, I do think that um, the music industry can be, um, a bit better than the sports industry in that respect. But I also think the main difference between the two things is that um, a football club has been around for 150 years and it will continue existing whether players leave, whether new players come, whatever. And it's it's it's, it's an institution. Whereas a band or an artist is that one person or small group of people. And only a very small amount of these bands um, or these artists become... Um, these solo artists become the, the, a kind of institution on their own. You have to get to a certain level. And I think that the fact that it's just, um, in often cases, one person or a few people um, doing something to entertain others um, is a distinct difference. Because when, if they decide to stop music, then if they decide to stop making music, then um, obviously then the the kind of brand they have just will eventually decline. But with a football club, They'll always keep playing. They'll, regardless of whether people come go, it's almost bigger than that. So that's what I think are the main differences. But I do think, um, almost coming full circle, I do think there is a big issue in the music industry when it comes to uh, raising t- raising prices and exploiting the people that really made these these small artists big in order to turn a profit. So that's where I think the similarity uh, lies. So thanks for your text there, Noah. Um, I've got another text here from Isla who says. The difference with the role of business in football versus basically every other part of culture is that every other part of culture runs on a fair and open market, whilst football is a closed system. If music fans didn't pay for a Spotify subscription, something else would be invented which worked better for fans. Spotify was made by music fans. It's the same with concert tickets, I think. Even though they're overpriced, people are okay paying them, and if not enough sell, they decrease in price. They decrease the price. If people didn't pay for Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus, then something else that that was better would be invented. That doesn't happen for football. You either pay the ticket price or you don't get access. And it's been this way forever. Well, Isla, thanks for your text. And that is, um, you made a host of good points there. Um, I would raise one other um, difference that I feel like you may have neglected there. In the fact that if you're a fan of an artist um, and they're on tour, you'd see them once and um, 
maybe for a super fan, maybe twice, but it, it's kind of an event and you look forward to it for ages and you go and you see it and that's it. But with a football team, if you follow them, you'll see them week in, week out, which is why it almost makes sense for ticket prices to be a lot lower to so that people can afford to go um, every day, but not every day, every week. But the, the issue is that football ticket prices are the same now as concert prices, which is why the normal the normal fan can't afford to go every week. And um, so that, that that's one of the main issues that, uh, that's been raised here. But going back to um, the point about the free open market that uh, music music companies, music streaming services, music distributors operate in, I do kind of see your point, but I think that there is a certain level when you come to the big record companies. They've got they've got such a they've got such a large influence that um, yes, you don't have to pay for Spotify, and there are illegal ways of downloading music, but it's still very difficult to get access to the music. It's not like um, something else will pop in, I pop up immediately because these companies have such um, uh, these companies are so powerful, almost like the um, football clubs are so powerful. So I do think that's a difference, but. I can see where you're coming from in that in both in, in football, it's almost like the, fa- the fact is that if you don't pay for the, the TV revenue or you don't pay for uh, to go to the matches, you won't be able to see the games. And there's very few free to air. Um, there's very few um, games that are free to air. Match of the day on the BBC is one of the only ones left. And uh, it, the way things are going, it almost seems like that may not be there for much longer as um, these games are taken away from the masses because private uh, tv companies are bidding are bidding more for it so um yeah thanks for the text there isla um i'm going to move on to another one though from harry who says other areas of culture stay true to their roots because they are dependent on the creators the music industry relies on really talented artists making new music constantly because otherwise people won't pay for what they're trying to sell the film industry needs directors and script writers to keep being creative and making great films Otherwise, the box office fails because people won't pay. In football, the TV networks still pay for the rights and season ticket holders still pay for the tickets because they support the club more than any individual player. It's really a statement of how rooted football is in British culture that the players could entirely change, yet people would still pay. But that's the problem with football. They don't need the support. They don't need to support the people at the roots to stay in business. Well, Harry... I feel like you've articulated in that text what I was trying to in my response to the last text in such a brilliant way. The idea that players for a team will come and go, managers will come and go, owners will come and go. And um, what Gary Neville said in the clip we played earlier was that these people, um, he said they're imposters. Um, another another word that was passed around was they're custodians, which is a nicer word. But what it really means is these people are temporary. Yes, they own the club and they take the profits from the club. But whether they come or go or whatever, the club will still exist. And it exists because, like you said there, Harry, it's rooted deeply in the community. For generations, fans have come, seen their team, supported it, gone through the good moments, the bad moments. And they feel a deep connection to the club because of that. Um, That's why there was so much dismay when these plans were announced, because so much tradition and history and culture was um, being flushed down the drain for, for, for more profit. And uh, that's really the problem. And addressing your um, your main point about why this is almost, um, ir- it, um, I'm not sure what word you use, but um, here we are. Um, it's, it, 
you said that um, people still pay because they don't need to support people at the roots of business. Yeah, the reason that is the case is because football fans are so dedicated that um, whether games are increased in prices or whatever, many people will still watch the games. And what the organisers of the European Super League referred to the, and I'm quote-unquote, original fans, the, the fans that go and watch every week in England, they refer to them as legacy fans. Uh, almost disregarding the fact that they're they're the reason this game is so big. And um, the point they were trying to make is for every fan who's been going for generations in the UK or in France, Spain, Italy, Germany, uh, wherever the country these these clubs were from, um, there's 10 of those fans who are new to football in America or in China or in India or somewhere in Africa. And these are the new markets that um, the clubs want to explore and exploit for, for more money. And... I'm going to say there's absolutely nothing wrong with getting fans from other countries involved in the game. But it can't be at the cost of the fans that made it so big and so appealing in the first place. So, yeah, I'm not against the expansion of football, obviously. It's great that it's becoming uh, more international and more people are supporting it. But it has to be done um, with the interests of the original fans in mind because they can't, they're, they're the reason it's such a big global phenomenon in the first place. So, yeah, that's my that's my take on it. Um, thanks for the text there, Harry. I think, Phil, like you, you really put across your points brilliantly. So, yeah, um, thanks for getting in touch. I've got another text here from Andrea, and she's going to be the last one before our second break. She says, I'm usually a libertarian. I don't think lots of regulation is usually the answer. But culture in the UK is in a very messy situation. In football, the European Super League has shown that. Have you tried to go to a concert pre-pandemic? Ticket prices are over £100 and most real fans can't afford to see their favourite artists live. I don't think regulation of culture needs to be done via government. I think there needs to be fan regulation across the board, like there is in some European football club, where the fans have a stake in the football club. Fans should also have a stake in the music companies and film companies too. We helped these areas of culture build and become so rich we should be involved in how they operate now. Well, Andre, your final point is the one I've been making throughout the show, and it, it, it's a brilliant point. I feel, I feel, well, that sounds a bit arrogant there on my part, but I feel like it's the most important point to um, remember: the fact that these industries are only so big because of the fact that fans uh, in the music industry, in the film industry, in the sport industry have made it so. Uh, football may be a bit different because of the fan culture and the uh, and the institutions that exist, like we said, but there are still very similar issues that um, are apparent in both cases. The fact that ticket prices are increasing and um, the fans are being ripped off. And I think that you make a great point. In Germany, every single football team has to be, um, has to have, the fans have to have a 50, 50 over 50% stake in the club, 50 plus one, um, which means that the fans can't be ripped off. Ticket prices are lower and, um, the system works much better for the fans. Uh, train train ticket prices are lowered uh, for football fans on match days so that working class fans can go to the matches. Um, all these things are done to make um, football part a more football more a part of um, work uh, of working class culture and um, to stop the game being exploited by the people at the top. Uh, nearly every Premier League club would make a profit if they charge zero pounds for um, their tickets, but they still charge ridiculous prices. Now, in my opinion, that's just greed. Um, so yeah, that's the issue there. Um, 
the the idea that fans should have a stake is not new and um i agree with you completely um i'm not actually sure how it would work in the music industry um whether people would have a set people whether the fans would be uh, on the board of the record companies to uh, determine where bands go on tour uh, ticket prices i'm not sure how that would work but um i do think it's a it's a really good point and um if anyone if andrea you'd like to get back in touch to say how you specifically you think that would work that would be that'd be really interesting so yeah um i feel like that's a good place to take our second break and we're gonna get our second song of the hour on now it's gracie and bill and bill and ted got you Welcome back to Wizard Radio, I'm Matthew Wolf. Just a reminder of the two topics we're discussing on today's show. The first question is what did the events surrounding the European Super League show about the role of business in culture? So that's the question we've been asking uh, for the first half an hour of the show. And uh, just a reminder of the question we'll be discussing later on. Uh, the question of if the law around climate change needs to be stricter and uh, more tightly binding for nation states. Um, so yeah, feel free to get in touch on both those topics, which we'll be discussing uh, for the last uh, half an hour of the show. Um, so yeah, I'm going to get straight into straight back into that first topic. And we've got a text here from Lewis who says, I just wanted to disagree with what Harry sent in about how football clubs don't need to support the people at the roots to stay in business. The people at the roots in football are supporters, are the supporters. And this week has shown that when the clubs betray the supporters, they lose support and it can become a really big issue. It's going to be to the detriment of these clubs, if these clubs' owners, if they keep ignoring the fans because they will eventually just lose the support of their local fans. And when season ticket holders stop paying for tickets, then they can't afford their precious players. Well, Lewis, um, I do see your point and I hope it to be true. Um, that's a take that lots of people had and... At first, it was my take as well. The idea that what this week showed is the fans have more power than they think and they were really strong and uh, the clubs actually listened to the outrage of the fans and um, changed because of that. And I think that may be partly true. Uh, maybe um, a fan reaction did contribute to uh, the withdrawal of the teams. But I think one of the bigger reasons is that behind the scenes, these clubs were just promised more money by UEFA. Um, and other bodies in order to to stay within their competition. I think that, um, the, yes, the outrage was part of it, but the clubs do know that even if many fans decide to boycott some games, for two reasons, it, it won't affect them in the long term. The first being that fans love their clubs so much that it won't last, they'll go back to it. Football's so ingrained in culture that um, they'll keep coming back, um, despite the terrible prices and the fact that the fans have been disregarded with the the nature of the competition but also the second point is that even if local fans and as they're calling them disgustingly legacy fans stay away that there are new markets where fans will be willing to pay and where you don't need the same fans to go week in week out you can get there are that many people in these markets are so big that you can get um you can get 10 million fans going once um once a year instead of uh, less fans going every single week and um that's what these owners are seeing. They're seeing um, how how financially favourable that could be. But I do think that one, I'm going to repeat it again, but one of the reasons this industry is so lucrative and uh, football and the Premier League is such a big brand isn't just because of the high level of competition and the high level of football. That is part of it. But another huge reason is because of the fans, the fan culture and 
um, what it provides, the rivalries, the tradition, the history, all of this stuff. And if that is uh, compromised, um, it, it could have effects on um, how interested um, foreign fans and other fans are in the game as a whole, if that is, is so diluted. But yeah, um, thanks for the text there. Um, thanks for the text there, Lewis. I'm going to move on, though, to another one from Ruby, who says, just, take, just to take another view on it, Let's say that fans don't hate, didn't hate the European Super League. Then you have the FA and UEFA basically demanding exclusive control of clubs. UEFA and the FA were against the European Super League before fans were against it because they're trying to create their own closed shop where you need to be, where you need to be dedicate, where you need to be dedicated to them, or you can't be involved at all. I'm against the European Super League. Don't get me wrong, but I'm also against the FA and UEFA trying to ban clubs from other tournaments because they were trying to be involved in the European Super League. They are part of the problem, not letting the game evolve and new tournaments that fans might actually like from getting started. Well, Ruby, I do see your point um, that UEFA preventing people from starting competitions that are improved can be an issue because they've got a monopoly on it. But I think that it was obvious they were they were angry and they were trying to prevent people from leaving in order to protect their own pockets. But I do think there is some legitimacy to the idea that they thought that should teams break away completely, it, it may hurt it may hurt um, clubs lower down. But I think that it, in the European Super League, the nature of it meant that it was easy to dislike. It was anti-competitive, there was no promotion, there was no relegation, etc. But I agree with you, Ruby, in that um, should another competition be introduced, one that does a promotion and relegation, one that maybe has all 20 Premier League teams and championship teams are invited to join should they uh, win the championship or whatever, um, and in which there's a salary cap or, um, or yeah, a salary cap or something to make the league fairer, then I think that that could be a good thing for football in which um, leagues become more competitive. And UEFA would obviously oppose that because it's competitive to them. And um, I'm a big fan of American football and the NFL, and they had this problem in the... Uh, in the 70s and 80s when rival leagues um, started poaching players who and paying them more money and the NFL responded um, with a host of new measures to try and make their league more competitive and their league the best and yes the NFL's got a lot of problems when it comes to how they treat their fans um, but I think the the salary cap and um, things like that that make the league um, very competitive are things that benefit it as a whole and I think should that be introduced to um, football English football or European football, whatever, and it, it would be a problem if UEFA try and block that. But I do think that um, the issue becomes kind of murky because the European Super League was such a bad idea and it's anti-competitive spirit, and it was so easy to dislike. So, um, yeah, thanks for the text there, Ruby. Um, I'm going to move on, though, to a text here from Alfie, who says, I was so surprised to see Boris Johnson actually get involved with the European Super League, but I do think this might have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Any area of business where there is so much money involved needs some sort of regulation and control. In 2019, the Premier League alone contributed £7.6 billion to the UK economy. The European football market is said to be worth £25.1 billion. It's shocking to think that the actual British government was more in touch with culture when it came to football than the actual clubs themselves. But that says to me that the government are the ones who need to bring some sort of control to football. Well, Alfie, it's an interesting point. And um, the idea that the government were trying to protect football, uh, to protect just the UK economy as a whole, 
as a whole is quite interesting and I think it could be the case but call me cynical but I think that a big reason as to why Boris Johnson was so involved was because he saw how unpopular the proposals were and thought it was an easy popularity booster to to come in and say um, I'm completely against this we'll stop this happening was an easy way to garner support among people that um, didn't necessarily like him before then so that would be the cynical way to look at it but I do think there's also a lot of um, there's a good point in saying that the, the fact that football is worth so much to the UK economy, um, the government wants to protect that um, with the Super League. But again, we're talking about how football can be used by the government as an asset for how much money it produces, um, kind of veiled in the idea that it's protecting football culture, um, that the government are trying to protect football culture. So I think we need to be wary when we thank governments for um, stepping in to see whether they're are they really stepping in to help the fans or are they stepping in to help the money football gives for their economy? So, yeah, um, thanks for getting in touch there, um, Alfie. And I think you've raised quite a host of interesting points. Um, I'm going to move on now to a text here from Danielle. Um, and Danielle says, I get it that football was hurt during the pandemic. They lost money because matches couldn't go ahead. Tournaments got suspended and so on. But everyone has been hurt during the pandemic. You have major high street shops like Topshop and Debenham shut down because of the pandemic. What you didn't see on the high street is a bunch of struggling shops get together, buy the physical high street, and then those shops charge other shops for the right to have their shops on the same high streets as them. This is the equivalent of what the European Super League was. They went too far to try and protect themselves and forgot about the impact it would have on fans. Well, Danielle, I really like your analogy, the idea that... Um, this this league created a closed shop, um, a closed book that didn't allow others in, and I think that um, that's exactly what uh, that's exactly um, what's happened with this with the Super League. And the example of how shops have not done that kind of puts it into perspective. Because yes, the pandemic's been been hard on every single business, but I think um, the instigators of this league, uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona, are hundred millions, hundreds of millions of euros in debt. And uh, that puts them in a different position to the Premier League clubs who, while struggling financially compared to a normal year, are still um, in the green when it comes to the finances. So I think that, yes, on, in some part, it's a pursuit of greed. But also, I think more than that, it, it was a pursuit of selfishness, of not thinking about all the other clubs in the in the Championship, League One, League Two, Conference, even below that, um, that have also been effective, affected just as badly, if not worse, by uh, the pandemic. And who would be, who would have been, who would have really had the knife in the back, the final nail in the coffin, should this have gone ahead? So I think that's um, a really good analogy and a really good summary um, of the situation there, Danielle. Uh, thanks to everyone for getting in touch on that topic. Um, we're going to be discussing our second issue of the show: the question of if the if the law around around climate change needs to be stricter. Um, so a big change of pace, um, but get in touch on that topic. After the after the third song of the hour, it's Dave and Titanium. Dave and Titanium. So we're getting on to our second topic of the hour on, on of the hour now. And the question I'm asking all of you listening is: Does the law around climate change need to be stricter? Just a reminder of why we're asking this question. It comes as uh, Brazil's president, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, um, approved a cut to the environment uh, ministry's budget in his country 
after he vowed to boost spending to tackle de- deforestation at a, at a US-led uh, climate summit. So, um, yeah, I want to know if you think that laws need to be tighter. And um, I've got a text here from Aidan who says, one of the things that actually shocked me so much about the Paris Climate Accord is that it didn't actually bind countries to their target. There are no punishments if a country misses their targets. And this means, and this is meant to be the most progressive climate pact ever. World leaders need to actually commit to things. We're at a tipping point when it comes to climate change. And if they didn't, if they don't hold each other to account and don't force the future leaders of their countries to follow the targets, then no change is ever going to happen. And we will be having the same conversation in 10 years time. Well, Aidan, um, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting uh, fact that you raised there. The fact that um, these climate agreements are not legally binding. None of them are. And therefore, no country is obliged to, to follow them. That's the biggest problem with all these agreements. Um, one of the things that was agreed at the, at the climate summit is that developing countries have longer before they need to start uh, reducing their carbon footprint because it obviously didn't seem fair for the developed countries that have already been producing emissions for years to uh, stop halt the development of um, less developed countries um, whilst they're not and not at a certain level. So that was one of the the thing that was one of the things that was put in place there. But I feel that that in itself was also a short term a short term measure which didn't really look ahead to. Um, the long-term impact of what it would have, oh, oh, I'll say that again, that didn't really take into account the long-term implications of um, what it would mean. The fact that if, if these countries are allowed to increase their emissions to a certain point, then the long-term impact on that could be irreversible. So I do think that um, action needs to be swifter and I think that it needs to be more legally binding. There has not yet been a legally binding um, climate change agreement between uh, many nations. And one Many are actually trying to keep to the targets and reduce emissions as much as possible. There's still no consequences for those who don't, and um, it's always it always seems to be at these the, at these summits that um, nations point to others and say, "Well, you produce more than us. Well, you produce more than us per per person." The U.S. of course produces far less emissions than China, so they can point to China and say, "You need to cut more because you produce more emissions," but the U.S. produces far far more emissions per person. Um, so China would say, well, hang on a minute. The only reason you produce less is because you've got less people. We want to get to the same stage of development as you before we start cutting our emissions. So um, whilst countries look at each other and say, hang on, you do this. No, you do this. Instead of saying, hang on, it's a collective problem. Let's all tackle it together. We'll be in a in a world of problems because um, because uh, real change won't be um, won't be embarked on. So, yeah. Um, thanks for your text there, um, Aidan, and thanks for raising that really interesting point about um, the Paris Climate Accord not being uh, legally binding. So, yeah, thanks for getting in touch. Um, I've got another text here from Frankie who says, I think we need to understand where developing countries like Brazil are coming from and why they want to be able to pollute. At the end of the day, countries like the UK are the reason we have such a climate catastrophe in the first place. But a system needs to be worked out whereby the likes of Brazil and China keep letting the rest of the world. But a system needs to be worked out whereby if the likes of Brazil and China keep letting the rest of the world down, they can be punished for it. If these countries continue what they're doing, then the planet will not be around for 50 years time for them to be global, global superpowers in. It's that it's that dire of a situation. I don't really understand what they don't understand about this. 
if they didn't stop polluting, if they don't stop polluting at the levels they are, the planet will be destroyed beyond repair. It's such short-term thinking from them. Well, th- well, Frankie, um, you raised a, a whole host of issues then, uh, many in that, in that text. And I want to start with the top where you talk about where you understand where developing countries are coming from. And that, the point you made there is identical to the point made by those developing countries at international summits. They're saying the reason we're in this mess is because of countries uh, like the UK, uh, America, uh, Russia, China, and um, you've got to this, this stage of development. Why, why can't we get to the stage before we cut down? It's not fair that we should be st- stuck in uh, a lower, um, a lesser stage of development while, while you're not, um, when you're the one that caused this mess. So um, you can completely understand where they're coming from, which is why I think there needs to be um, subsidies from the bigger com- the bigger countries, the already developed countries, to allow these smaller nations, uh, when I say smaller, I mean smaller in terms of economic power, not in terms of population, but these um, less developed countries to um, to be able to develop in a sustainable way, to be de- to develop um, to develop green energy and um, develop in a way that is not so bad for the environment, because we can already see the impacts that climate change is having around the world, and um, maybe fifty years the world not being around is a bit. Um, bit extreme i don't think that would be the case but we are in a in a in the um at the beginning of what could be a catastrophe and i think that um that that that's, needs to be held in mind um as we embark on the next stage of climate proposals so yeah um thanks again in touch there frankie um and i'm going to move on to another message here from um from inaya and inaya is going to be the last uh text of the show so thanks to everyone for getting in touch Uh, on this topic but yeah i'm just going to read out what she said she says we've been learning at school a lot about net zero which is when companies try to make their overall carbon footprint zero it allows them to keep polluting to an extent but they need to do things that will then absorb the same amount of carbon like planting trees and other things that take carbon out of the environment it's not perfect but it starts to improve things i think that net zero needs to become a policy not just a recommendation a government needs to implement laws that make it so that every company needs to be net zero or else they'll be fined and make the fines de- decent so companies care about if they get fined. This might actually start to make positive change. Inaya, I completely agree with you, but I do see some problems with that. I feel like if this is to be the case, it needs to be the case across nations because if strict rules on uh, net zero are introduced in one country, then big business would just move to countries that don't have the restrictions. So I do think that international cooperation on this issue is absolutely vital. So uh, that's the first point I'll make. The second point is that you're right that net carbon isn't perfect. Um, simply planting trees to replace um, pollution isn't perfect because uh, the, the the environment you destroy with pollution uh, may have taken thousands, if not millions of years to evolve into the uniquely biodiverse um, ecosystems they are and um, simply planting trees while absorbing carbon um, does not replace the environments that took so long to evolve and uh, to be the way they are so that's one issue but you're completely right in that it is positive and it's better than um, having no legislation at all and I think that word legislation is absolutely key and a good way to kind of end this discussion the fact that there needs to be legally binding um, rules to stop the exploitation of the planet um, at the rate we're going at now. So yeah, um, thanks for getting in touch, Anaya. Thanks to everyone for getting in touch on both the topics we discussed today. 
If you've missed any of my show, it'll be available for the next seven days on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. Go to the repeat section. Uh, I'll be there. Also, you can listen to this week's show and all and all other episodes of the show in the form of a podcast, wherever you get uh, your podcast normally, or Spotify, Apple, etc. Um, just search Matthew Wolf. The podcast title is titled Your Views on the News with Matthew Wolf. Be sure to check that out. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, up next is Madeline Molly, but first it's time for the news and the weather. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.